Good morning. My name is Judith Sachs, and I'm the Chief Academic Officer of Studiosity. Um, should I also say Kaora? And I want to acknowledge that I am hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Camaragal people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we all work today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this meeting and the First Nations people across Canada and New Zealand. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia and across the broad expanses of Canada and New Zealand. I welcome our colleagues from Canada and New Zealand. Um, it's good to have you participate and hopefully this will be the beginning of a cross Commonwealth cooperative program. Today is our second symposium for 2021. Again, focusing on well-being, this time with professional and academic staff in mind. All of us experienced lockdown and had to spend many hours during the day participating in meetings or delivering classes on Zoom, Meets or Skypes. Despite this, or in spite of this, we responded and delivered courses. Student learning did not stop. Universities did not stop running. But it was different and there was a personal cost. While it tested everyone's resilience, it did reinforce our commitment to students and our universities. We had to work differently. How many times did we see a child wanting a parent's attention in the background or a cat walking across a keyboard? We were invited into people's new workplace. For some, there was a space that they could conduct their work in. For others, it was more difficult. Discussions are now being held in universities about how do we work and where do we work? This will be a topic of ongoing discussion. At Studiosity, we've seen this as an opportunity to deliver a series of webinars and symposia and have enabled a diverse range of people to participate. And these have all triggered conversations and ideas to facilitate student success. Over 400 people have registered. And I think that uh, each of our, our, our webinars uh, has increased both the visibility of the issues in which we're addressing, but also creating a community of practice across a number of continents. Staff wellbeing is a challenge, but also a central responsibility of what we do in an education setting. So how is this morning organized? I think I've just about got my five minute introduction completed. I will then ask each panel member questions that relate to their expertise and experience, and then questions will be taken from the audience. Um, but before we start, um, I would like to uh, show a clip of some staff members um, who described their experience of last year and the impact it had on their well-being. So if I can invite you to watch what I think is rather a remarkable piece of uh, cinematic editing. In my case, I'm working at home for various periods of lockdown, trying to sort of homeschool my kids while teaching classes virtually, and then feeling guilty on all fronts. So that feeling of like, well, I'm, I'm a terrible mom, I'm a terrible teacher, I'm a terrible researcher. It's like that kind of feeling, it, I think that um, that's not just me that felt that way. A, a lot of people are very stressed out, not only for job security, but also you feel guilt if, if, if you're one of the people who survived the cuts. Um, and then, of course, there's huge workload challenges. You may not be teaching as many um, students face-to-face, -face, but you're still teaching a lot of students. There's a, a significant cultural piece, I think, that needs to be done at the moment, and that's about 
re-engaging with staff and reconnecting with staff, instilling a, a sense of belonging and connectedness again, and, and reminding staff of a sense of purpose. So one thing that I've been super impressed with is the camaraderie between staff. Many, many staff have been out of their depths and in this totally new environment. And I've seen a lot of uh, my colleagues helping each other, and that's amazing. My colleagues are people too, students are people too. We are not just our work. Our work is important. I love my job. I, I love research. I do it because I love it. But at the same time, I can't only exist for that one thing. And I can't run myself ragged because I'm no good for anybody if I do. Uh, what I, I think would be useful is if we can all learn from this experience. You know, I'm excited about what's going to happen in the future with digital education, but I just wish that we didn't have to go through a pandemic to get that change. To have a mentally well university community, we have to have our staff being well looked after. And if we do that, then we can really make sure that we're providing the highest quality care to, to our students. So we've got the staff perspective uh, from three people from uh, Australia uh, and Canada. Um, but could I ask the members of the panel just to introduce themselves briefly and just tell us about your background experience in universities and Professor Terry, if I could invite you to speak first. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Judith, and thank you for organising this important symposium. So my name's uh, Debbie Terry. I'm Vice-Chancellor of the University of Queensland, currently Chair of uh, Universities Australia and previously Vice-Chancellor of Curtin University. Thank you. Giselle. Uh, kia ora, Judith, and uh, hello from Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Giselle Burns and I'm Provost at Massey University. I've also worked in the Australian higher education sector and delighted to be part of this conversation today. Noreen. Thanks, Judith. Uh, I'm situated on the northeast coast of the continent of North America. I'm at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and I am currently on administrative leave, but I served as provost and vice president academic at Memorial for almost seven years. And before that, I was a dean of graduate studies at Memorial, and I've been here with the university for over three decades. Uh, I was president of the Canadian Federation for the Humanities and Social Sciences for four years and uh, have done a lot of work on the national scene as well. Currently almost luxuriating in a post-provostial position. <laughs> and, and Professor Schmidt. Uh, yes, I'm Brian Schmidt from the Australian National University. I made an unusual jump from professor to vice chancellor. Uh, in 2015, uh, after immigrating to Australia from North America uh, in 1995, I serve alongside uh, Deb Terry on the University's Australia board, I'm on, on the board, and I'm also uh, deputy chair of the group of eight. Thank you. And what uh, Professor Schmidt failed to tell you, if you don't know, if you live overseas, He's also been awarded a Nobel Prize for astrophysicists. So um, we are very privileged in Australia to have a, a, a vice chancellor leading our national university of his caliber. So Brian, you were the last person that I invited because you're the first person I'm going to ask a question to. Um, 2020 began with multiple challenges for the ANU. 
smoke closing the campus, bushfires, hailstorm damage, and then COVID. Describe what 2020 was like for staff at the ANU, and then what are the top one or two priorities that have emerged in response to the pandemic? Thanks, Judith. Uh, well, yeah, 2020 uh, started poorly for us. Actually, at the end of 2019, we had smoke from bushfires come rolling through uh, Canberra. And at the beginning of 2020, we had to uh, close our campus for a week, uh, which was a you know, uh, first for the campus. Uh, and we had peoples with their properties and some of our own property uh, uh, being threatened by bushfires. Uh, so what we found is that our staff literally didn't get that Christmas break of 2020 because we were sort of all on edge here in Canberra. That was followed up on the 20th of January with a hailstorm that is will end up being probably the second largest insurance claim in the history of Australia for a single institution. Uh, it destroyed almost every car on campus. It uh, damaged 85 of our buildings. We had to close down campus again. Uh, and then uh, on the 27th of January, we had our first critical incident meeting looking at the effects of COVID and what might happen and had to, of course, immediately deal with students coming through or not being able to get into the country on the 1st of February. So we, we had our staff and quite frankly, our students, but our staff really missing that break after a very intense 2019. So uh, that was put our, our, our staff um, I would say in a fairly battered position at the beginning of the year, uh, and then going into uh, what has been, you know, universally a challenging year across the world. So, you know, we've been focusing on our staff and students as best we can. Uh, the pandemic, when we think about um, the pandemic, our first reaction was trying to protect our students uh, and make safe our campus for our staff. So that was always at the front, front of mind. <clears throat> and so we've always tried to go out and be as transparent as we can uh, with our staff uh, to let them know why we're making decisions we are. Uh, so, you know, right at the beginning of the year, uh, the question is how are we gonna work from home? Uh, you know, that was a huge uh, uh, switch. Um, and so we went out and I will say I upset some of my fellow colleagues, but I still think it was the right thing to do is we said, let's not overthink working at home. If you can do 25 hours a week, we're going to call that full. We know you're going to be juggling kids at home. Uh, life is going to be complicated. So don't feel guilty. Do your best. And what we found is that gave people peace of mind to say, I can do this. And I think most people found ways to work more than that and get what they needed done done. But I think that was sort of set the standard of, of how we're gonna deal with the event at ANU. In terms of dealing with our students, uh, you know, we had essentially to have the students leave campus at very short notice along with the staff. And we ended up having to go out and effectively pay out their uh, contracts for their living expenses on campus because our partners declined to do so. And we had to make, you know, essentially evacuate campus in 24 hours. Uh, again, we're trying to do our best to put our staff and our students up front. Uh, but it has been a very challenging year. And uh, I think one of the things we just have to be aware of as we focus on making our campus as 
as good as possible for staff and students, um, it's not perfect. It's a long ways from perfect. And I think not trying to you know, put lipstick on a pig, uh, which is I think one of the big mistakes people do, uh, has to be part of what you do um, in this thing. It, it is challenging and we're not gonna make it uh, good, but we can do it and retain the trust of our staff and our students by being honest with them. And I think keeping that trust has been essential because if you lose the trust, you're done. There's just no way you're gonna survive in this thing. Okay. Um, Debbie, from your position both as Vice-Chancellor at uh, UQ and also Chair of UA, what do you see some of the biggest staff wellbeing issues being uh, across Australian universities? And um, you know, what, what, what responses have you been seeing that you think, yes, that's been successful? No, thanks very, very much, Judith, and uh, obviously acknowledge uh, and agree with a lot of the points that, that Brian's made. I mean, I think across the sector, we've been obviously deeply aware of, of the impact of the pandemic more broadly. So we've been very conscious of the impact on our sector, uh, but, but much more broadly. And we've been conscious of the fact that staff right across our universities have had other concerns in, in their lives. And we've already heard a bit about it today, uh, homeschooling, but job insecurity in families, unemployment, you know, so it's it's a bigger piece beyond, beyond our staff. But, but for our staff, and I think it was encapsulated very well uh, with one of the opening comments on the video, I think there has been concern right across the sector around job insecurity. And, um, you know, there have been uh, different impacts across our sector. There certainly have been job losses and, you know, every one of those job losses, it's felt very, very hard uh, and it, it's tough for the individual, the families and, and their communities. So that's been something that we've been uh, deeply aware of, certainly from the Universities Australia perspective, but just living with that sense of insecurity and our staff knowing that, yes, they, they, they may be uh, fine, but you know they've seen some of their colleagues perhaps losing their positions, casual staff, tutors who have been uh, involved in, in, in their teams. So I think that's, that's certainly one uh, big concern. I think the second big concern has been just around the workload. I mean, what was achieved last year by our staff right across the sector, academic staff and professional staff was phenomenal. I mean, here at UQ, uh, within a space of a week, 1,529 courses went from face-to-face -face delivery to online delivery. I mean, that is an enormous amount of work in a very short period of time. Uh, and then obviously that continued really for the whole of the year. And then uh, now what we're seeing, and certainly in, in, in Queensland and in many parts of Australia, obviously um, we are back to quite a lot of face-to-face -face teaching but we have many of our international students who haven't been able to travel to Australia. So I think our staff are deeply concerned about the students uh, who haven't been able to travel, many PhD students, but also many students studying um, our, our courses. So staff now are in many cases doing face-to-face -face teaching as well as um, uh, online teaching. So the workload is, is, is significant. And I, I was with a group of heads of schools here at UQ yesterday. And it's, you know, it, it really is uh, a big issue. 
uh, because, you know, you can do things in the short term, but this is now more than a year uh, since, you know, we moved all of the courses here at UQ online. And in many cases, we've got staff who are having to teach in this hybrid mode. And, you know, there's concerns with, with our early and mid-career researchers in terms of keeping up with their uh, research, being able to stay competitive uh, for grants and grant applications, et cetera. So I think we are really starting to see the impact of the stress associated with a workload over a considerable period of time. Thank you. Giselle, um, in your role as provost in a university that has multi-campuses, um, what are some of the uh, priorities um, that you've identified and put in place to ensure the duty of care to academic and professional staff? Kia ora, Judith, and thanks for the question. And uh, kia ora koutou also to the New Zealanders who are online today. I know there are quite a number of you. Um, look, picking up on the comments that have been made uh, by my colleagues here today, uh, reflecting also on the New Zealand situation, I think we've had really four key objectives here at Massey. And the first was really to ensure that staff and student wellbeing really was very much top of mind when we were making key decisions throughout last year. Our crisis management team included our health and wellbeing leader here at the university, along with student and staff representatives. And every one of the decisions that we made was considered through the lens of staff and student wellbeing. And that included mental health as well as physical well-being and safety. So we spent much of our time ensuring that our decisions considered the safety and the well-being of staff and students first, and then we worked out uh, how to deliver uh, an excellent learning and teaching experience with the uh, well-being piece already being taken care of. And that was really important because it meant that we weren't creating some kind of bolt-on well-being approach, uh, but it was fully integrated in terms of what we would be doing. Um, secondly, we prioritised very regular and clear communication with our people. So we made a very conscious effort right from the start to ensure that a message of well-being and self-care for loved ones, for family or whānau, was amplified through our internal communications. And we took the decision that we'd continue to be open and transparent with our people, both in terms of the decisions we were making and how the university was managing the crisis. And that included uh, our visibility of the financial situation as it was unfolding. And we thought it was really critical to address this uh, because we knew there was anxiety out there. And universities are, of course, full of very smart people and they know when you're holding back any information. So we wanted our people, academic and professional staff, to know what was happening while being very clear that the what we were sharing was actually accurate and also valid. And as you've noted, Judith, Massey's a multi-campus university. We have major campuses in three cities across the North Island here in Aotearoa. And we always struggle to ensure that our leaders are visible across all of those campuses. So being clear, and regular with our communications was incredibly important. Um, thirdly, notwithstanding that Massey academic and professional uh, staff managed the transition to online uh, teaching delivery incredibly well, we knew that we couldn't underestimate the enormity of this rapid shift. So Massey's been delivering distance teaching for more than 50 years, and many of our staff are highly skilled in understanding the pedagogies of distance and online learning and supporting students who are studying remotely. 
But we didn't want to take this knowledge and capability for granted either. And to underscore this, we communicated a message to our people that, you know, you're not working from home, you're working at home, trying to work during a crisis. And, and as Brian noted in uh, ANU's messaging, we found that this gave people permission to take a bit of a breath, not feel that they were working under the same degree of expectation. And to support this, we've remained very flexible with regard to where people now choose to work and what works best for them and their families. And finally, Judith, um, my teams were there in a support capacity really to ensure that academic staff had the necessary tools to undertake their work from home, that our learning management system was operating well, and, and this is really important too, that we made academic decisions regarding changes to assessments, new arrangements for examinations and so on very swiftly. And we circumvented some of the processes of decision-making that can usually take time. And so we did that in a way where we were not compromising on quality. This built an enormous amount of trust between a number of our academic and professional teams. And I'm now very focused on maintaining this momentum and this way of operating in a more agile and high trust manner. And that's been hugely important and I think empowering for academic staff in particular. So I'll leave it there for the moment, Judith. Thank you. And our Canadian perspective, um, Noreen, what observations or comments can you make about what, what, how, how the Canadian uh, universities and your university in particular uh, responded and how staff were supported? Well, my <coughs> comments are going to echo my uh, fellow panelists. Uh, really not a lot of difference, except that uh, it's interesting hearing Brian talk about the brush fires and how 2020 began because here, in the city uh, in which our largest campus is located, St. John's where I live, we began 2020 with what came to be known as Snowmageddon. So we had, um, I think it hit CNN as a, you know, a human interest story. We had a massive dump of snow <clears throat> that pretty much um, shut down the entire city and the university for a week. Um, the city declared an emergency and uh, everything stopped. We were all pretty much trapped within our houses. Um, it took um, almost two weeks to dig out completely from that, never anticipating what would follow uh, from that. That was January 17th, 2020. So we, um, suspended classes. It was, of course, the start of what we would call our winter semester, and then slowly, you know, crawled back to the university and uh, started to get back into stride for the new semester. And then, of course, March happened and um, everything that we're talking about now. So um, people started speaking about 2020 in fairly dystopian terms very early. Um, because one wondered, you know, what was next after that kind of crisis. Again, not unlike the kind of experience you have on the other side of the world uh, with the effects of climate change. So we're, we're haunted in a way by the um, unique and um, heavy burden that staff and students were placed under, both being trapped in university residences, not being able to get food. There were food security issues. 
around the snowstorm in the first place. And then just the, uh, and the feeling of being trapped, of course, um, in a very uncertain uh, moment of uh, what had just been declared as a pandemic. Um, it's interesting, I, I notice in questions that are coming through on the chat line that somebody asked um, how we define staff on this panel. In Canada, we tend to distinguish between staff as our professional or support staff and faculty, our tenure track or our tenured faculty, but that would include as well casual staff as faculty. So my Canadian friends and colleagues across the country who might be listening to this uh, might be puzzled by the uh, universalizing of the term staff. Um, but it's an interesting distinction to think about in terms of how the university thought about supporting these different groups, because the machine, in order to keep the machine working, in order to supply the infrastructure for the shift to online learning very, very quickly, uh, in order to ensure that those students who could not return to their home countries all over the world could be fed and looked after and safely housed, uh, that machine was really propelled by what we would call the staff here. Well, the faculty were able to retreat to their homes by and large and start working from home. Not to say that was easy. And certainly as more time has passed, the more difficult that burden has, um, has been described as being and has become. Uh, but there were these um, distinctions that we had to keep in mind while we were attending first and foremost to the safety of our students. Uh, we have a, a relatively robust international student cohort and that I would say was our primary concern is what to do about the hundreds and hundreds of students who could not go home. Um, we thought about our resident buildings for instance as something like cruise ships that if one student um, caught the virus, of course, we'd be in a kind of cruise ship situation with the infection circulating from floor to floor to floor and uh, really not being prepared to deal with that kind of emergency crisis. And um, all of those questions were dealt with in the immediacy of the declaration of the pandemic. But staff as faculty, um, were incredibly nimble, I, I think, as they have been probably all over our universities in understanding the duty of care uh, that we have for students, our obligations to um, maintaining uh, the contract we have with our students to deliver our programs, our courses to them, and um, our Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning really stepped up and the professional staff there, as they have done, I'm sure, in almost every university in this country, uh, really went to work to do the heavy lifting almost 24-7, trying to put in place an infrastructure to, in the first place, um, just put the bandwidth in place, get the technology up to speed, make sure the IT uh, was functioning at a professional level because the whole issue of access was paramount, of course, um, and the unevenness of that and the inequities built into access became uh, very well defined 
at the first blush of the pandemic. But I'm then going to have to, I'm going to have to cut you off because I'm, I'm now getting a whole, of, a whole stream of questions. But certainly, okay, I'll, I'll stop. Go ahead. Um, Feel free to do that. <laughs> um, there's a, a message here from Jeannie Trinder. And two of you um, talked about trust. Uh, Brian, you talked about trust. And uh, Giselle, you talked about trust. And either of you can respond to this. But how do we disseminate this message of trust down through the levels of academic and professional leadership? Well, uh, I, the, the Dutch have a saying um, that uh, trust comes in on foot and leaves on horseback. So you don't just tell people be trustful. I, it has to be part of the way your organization runs. And so when you make clear, and we make clear in our value statement that trust is something that is absolutely valued in the organization. And when people are not trustworthy, they pay a high penalty. Uh, that is the only way you can, I think, really disseminate it. Is that you have to? It's it's definitely one of those values that comes from the top. And if the top is not trustworthy, then uh, you usually lose your job. But it does tend to flow flow down through the organization. So I think it just has to be absolutely at the core of your your being as a university, and not be tricky, and make sure that everyone is not tricky. And if they are, that they pay a consequence for it that is, is seen by everyone. Okay, Giselle? Yeah, um, great question, Judith, thank you. Uh, I'm referring to it in two ways. I think the, the high level of trust that we saw demonstrated between academic and professional staff and an absolutely mutually dependent uh, relationship there. Um, uh, but also the, the trust that I think um, we saw demonstrated in the decision-making process. So if I can elaborate on that a little bit more, sometimes at our universities, our systems of academic governance and decision-making can be quite slow and can be quite cumbersome. Uh, we empowered our uh, crisis management team, which had um, direct contact through to the academy and to the teaching academics and their representatives. We empowered them to make very swift decisions um, in real time about changes to assessments, changes to what we were teaching, changes to examinations and so on. And I think, you know, the trust I'm referring to is the real time aspect of actually hearing uh, the concerns that academics were raising on the ground, as it were, and then responding to that very quickly. Uh, so we managed to kind of cut through some of the bureaucracy that we normally surround ourselves with. And we're very focused on maintaining that. And I think there's is very much a spirit of reciprocity that, that underpins that trust. So that is what I'm referring to there. Debbie, do you want to make a comment? Yeah, no, thank you, Judith. And it is a very good question. I mean, I think, you know, trust goes to the absolute core of, as Brian said, our values as, as, as a sector right across our institutions. But through this pandemic, I mean, you know, I think you build trust with frequent, honest communication. And I think that has been absolutely core to uh, institutions. And we've already heard it here this morning across our, our panelists, but being able to communicate quickly uh, and provide all of the details that you possibly can at any one point in time, I think really does help build that trust, uh, trust that uh, the institution 
uh, understands what is occurring and is trying to do the very best, but also building trust with having avenues to uh, have questions and other feedback uh, come through. But I think without that, it, it is extraordinarily difficult to manage uh, what we've all just gone through and to manage it in a way that uh, looks, looks to the wellbeing absolutely as paramount of our staff and our students. And I know that in many universities, and certainly um, I'm sure it was at UQ and I know it was at ANU, there were staff forums, there were Zoom forums. Mm. But the challenge with Zoom is it's such one dimensional. You can't see people's body language. You can't, you can't read what the actual impact is. So in many respects, it becomes a mode of delivery of just communicating a message rather than receiving a message as well. So how did you, how did you any of you try to respond to that sort of um, transactional way of communicating rather than a, a, an organic way of communicating? Well, we've had a we've had a number of town halls, so to speak, Zoom town halls, and it's interesting at the outset, you know, with different groups and uh, uh, cohorts on campus on our campuses. At the outset, they were hugely attended. I think everybody really craved kind of contact, even the one-dimensional uh, nature of this format. Um, as they have proceeded, the attendance has dwindled somewhat. I mean, people have Zoom and town hall fatigue now <laughs> and are craving a return to an in-person uh, interaction. I think the challenge now is how do you get people back onto campus? I think you might be further ahead in Australia than we are in Canada with that. We're not yet at the in-person class um, um, culture yet we're trying to manage that. I think it was, some, it was in some ways easier to shut down quickly, communicate quickly and transparently than it is to return. I'd be curious to hear more about that from others, about those challenges and how that communication is happening. I think that's to some degree unanticipatedly more difficult. Brian, I saw that you were leaning forward to make a comment. I was actually one of the I guess epiphanies for me is I actually find big Zoom town halls probably more effective than their in-person equivalent. First of all, much higher attendance. I'm a small institution and I had, you know, I had a Zoom meeting that had 1500 people attend. And because of the Q&A bit, we can go through questions at a rate probably 10 times higher. And as near as I can tell, the, the alphas don't dominate like they do <laughs> in the town hall meetings. So I actually think it's one of the few places the things that Zoom does better. Now, we all have Zoom fatigue and just sick of it and we wanna get on campus. But I actually think I will continue to use uh, the Zoom for, uh, for some of the things. Zoom is not good when you go below 50 and you normally then start having one-on-one -on -one communications. It's pretty poor at that. But at the really big ones, I'm pretty happy with it. Debbie? Yeah, I would agree with, with, with Brian. I think for the big sessions, I was uh, surprised actually at just how much interaction you could get, you know, with, you know, many hundreds of, of, of people on, on the uh, uh, Zoom calls or the town halls, the virtual town halls. And it really was a good opportunity 
to hear from a full range of people and then to be able to follow up with the questions afterwards because you had a record of the questions and you could follow up. But what I'm now finding, and I think Brian's made the point, you know, once you get to the smaller groups, because we are more back on campus uh, here in Australia, North, or, um, you know, largely across, across the country, you're really getting into um, more detail around the challenges. You know, you do get more depth in, in terms of the questions and the conversation that you can have in the smaller groups. And I've been uh, really appreciating that. And I, and I know colleagues are that you can just start really understanding the impact of of how this is playing out, you know, in an extended period of time. You know, we're now more than a year. This is a long time and people have been coping with, with quite a deal of stress. So uh, being able to really have those conversations, explore other things that we can do as we continue uh, to have to work, particularly in this hybrid mode has been really important uh, for, for me. And I know other colleagues have found that. Giselle? Thanks, Judith. Um, just to the points that have already been made, I mean, here uh, in New Zealand, we're at alert level one, uh, which means that we are at liberty to come back on campus, students and staff, but we're also respecting those uh, public health precautions. Um, it, it can feel like we have returned to normal, but we know it's not. Um, here at Massey, we've taken a, a blended approach or a hybrid approach to our teaching and learning delivery. We were doing that uh, pre-COVID. We're continuing to do that. And the same with the way in which we're managing meetings and so on. So we're doing more rather than less meetings via Zoom. As Brian said, um, we've found that across our three physical campuses, it's actually really useful to have everyone um, on the screen. You know, everyone has the same size square on a Zoom screen. Um, and it's actually, we've found much more inclusive. Uh, and especially for those people who perhaps might still be working off campus if they are immune compromised and so on. So we're trying to be as flexible as we can, leveraging the opportunity, but we all love those embodied in-person experiences, I think. Um, so here in New Zealand, I would just echo the kind of comments that have been made around the table so far. Thank you. Um, in my preparation for, for today's meeting, I, I did some reading and there was a, a comment that was made in Forbes, Forbes magazine and uh, the, the, you use the word challenge, um, Noreen. And the, the comment was, it may be said that the challenge has been in learning how to survive through this uncertainty. The opportunity is to learn how to thrive. Do, do any of you want to make a comment on both the, the idea of the challenge, but also the opportunity that this has given? And, and in some respects, your responses to the last question about Zoom has, has indicated that the opportunity of Zoom is to reach larger audiences, but have other opportunities emerged? And anybody can answer this one. No, I just jump in there, Judith, but because that, that very much resonates with us here at Massey. So absolutely, the pandemic has provided us with an opportunity to accelerate and, and make changes that would otherwise have taken some time, and that's uh, changes to what we teach, how we teach, and to ensure that we can be sustainable as an organisation in the future. However, I think those of us in leadership roles would be tone deaf to the concerns of staff if we didn't also acknowledge that that change is painful and it's difficult, and hence the importance, I think, of taking people on the journey, of sharing information, as we've already noted, of being very, very clear 
about the rationale for change, why change is needed, um, what are the outputs that will be delivered from, from the kind of benefits of change, and then how we're going to support people through that. I think that's absolutely critical. So, so I think the short answer is absolutely yes, but I'm very sensitive to overplaying that given the trauma that many people are still feeling, not just in their professional working lives and the anxiety that they're experiencing, but for their families as well. So um, I know we'll touch later on in the conversation on the way in which our staff uh, really uh, are not just experiencing the impact uh, within their working lives, but they're also, as one of our speakers said in the video introduction, uh, you know, really connected into the rest of their lives. And I, I think we're seeing that very powerfully through the way that our staff are engaging with us and have been. Other, other comments? I mean, I think it's right. I, I think we, well, there's some opportunities going forward. I, I think we have to realize that the, this has not been fun or good for almost any of our staff. But I do think, uh, you know, learning how to use digital media more flexibly has been good. We have the opportunity, I think, to uh, have bring flexibility into our work, workplace in a way that I don't think would have been acceptable uh, a year and a bit ago. But I'm very focused. There's an up and bad side to that is flexibility may actually be, um, in some cases, you know, just at some level bad for people and bad for the institution if we don't do it well. So, you know, we're in that conversation of how we bring people back to class that we reflected that I think uh, Noreen was talking about. And people are um, at some level, I worry that they're saying flexibility means I'm gonna try to juggle my job and, you know, uh, care at the same time. That's not good for, for our staff. It's not, it's very stressful. And I think we have to be cognizant that uh, this is not a chance to exploit people's best intentions. Uh, but on the other hand, it is the ability for people to work a day at home uh, a week, I think is pretty universally accepted as okay now. So that's a plus, because I think that will help people balance their lives. Noreen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree with that. And I, I mentioned inequity before, as it's been a kind of byproduct of all of this. Um, you know, there are a lot of inequities built into academic life, post-secondary education that we almost take for granted. It's just part of the system or the way things work. Uh, it's a bit paradoxical, but I do think this um, new reality we've been inhabiting for the last year has helped to set those in much sharper relief and put some focus, a lens on the differences in the way uh, our staff um, are able to respond to the situation that they're in, whether it's childcare or uh, single parent care or a lot of it around domestic labor, um, working at home, uh, certainly women bearing the brunt of, of that uh, traditional kind of labor. And um, these issues, I think, we, I don't think we can go back to the way it was after having all of this exposed so blatantly um, because they have just added to the, uh, to the anxiety 
of what's almost kind of the normal anxiety of being a staff member at a post-secondary institution these days. Um, so that, those kinds of pressures, I think, have really risen to the surface as a kind of shared uh, understanding of what they are, where they come from, and how we need to attend to them. Like, it's a silver lining, unintended consequence. Yeah. Thank you. Deborah. Yes, no, I think just to echo particularly Giselle's comments, I think, you know, it has, you know, we can think about the pandemic as having been an accelerant of, of change and a lot of change that was already occurring. And I think right across our institutions, it's made us all look at, um, as Brian said, you know, different ways to have flexible workplaces and flexibility for our staff, but also for our students, how we can offer our courses more flexibly, um, through um, you know, digital uh, offerings and online offerings. But I'm very conscious of the fact that, as Giselle, I think, has nicely articulated, yes, there are great opportunities there, but we've just got to pace the amount of change because uh, here in Australia, uh, and I'm sure it's the case in New Zealand and Canada, as I said earlier, we're still dealing with this very complex hybrid environment with many of our international students not able to travel uh, to Australia and then supporting those students. So I'm conscious as, as, as a leader and, and with, with my leadership team as, uh, in terms of we, we, we can see some opportunities here, but let's just pace that change and support it appropriately for all of our staff, our academic and our professional staff, but also for our students. Next question, and this, this came up both um, in the comments made by um, the uh, academic staff that we on, on the video, but also some questions that came up uh, previously uh, before, the, um, uh, before the, the webinar. And it is about job insecurity. Um, and there, there's a question here, but there's also one that came, came before. So job insecurity is a key cause of stress and reduced productivity. How do we fix the problem of large scale job insecurity? And how do you ensure staff well-being when there's a constant fear of losing the job amongst staff? Um, anybody want to uh, <laughs> want to respond to that, Brian? Well, um, and this is a place where there's there's some things you want to do which are very hard to do in practice. So this is a problem at my institution. We have uh, a requirement of doing effectively when we do large scale change processes in what is a very drawn out fashion. And, you know, psychologically people wanna know what's happening and get it done with and move on. Uh, so you do wanna try to make things, uh, have clarity of what's going on and, and, and make sure that there isn't this uncertain period. Um, and to my best attempts to make sure that that happened, we have failed miserably at ANU. And so that is hanging over my staff's heads uh, because we just simply, the, the, the level of change has been, we couldn't do it all in a very short period of time. But again, uh, clarity, uh, trying to have the, the time where people don't know their state to be minimized um, are, are the things you wanna do, uh, but again, rather challenging to do in practice. Okay. Other, other co comments or responses? And uh, Judith, I'm, you know, would, would just add, I mean, I think we are very, very deeply conscious of the fact that job insecurity um, and, and the threat of job insecurity has been 
uh, a huge challenge uh, for, for our staff right across this period. Uh, and I think, you know, as Brian has said, it is about where change is, is required being absolutely clear uh, with all of the messaging, ensuring that there is all of the appropriate consultation and support through those, those, those very difficult periods. And again, if I can come back to the broader comments around the need to communicate as much as possible to our staff, uh, broadly, our staff cohort, both academics and professional staff, as to how the, the, the institutions are, are travelling uh, in terms of, uh, you know, board uh, budget positions, giving as much information as, as possible, being clear in terms of how the planning is being undertaken, what's it, what factors are being taken into account, and, and being clear that, you know, for all of us, it is about protecting, obviously, through this, this difficult period, as many, many jobs as possible. But I think job insecurity and the, the threat of job insecurity has been, as we heard in the opening comments, one of the very significant challenges of this period, not only for our sector, but, but right across our communities. And I, you know, we, we, you know, we, we all need to acknowledge that um, because it has been a, a, you know, a, a huge source of anxiety. And just there's, there's a, a question here, when people are stressed and fatigued, relationships become uh, fractious, creative thinking declines, and willingness to reflex, uh, to flex, to suit uh, new conditions wears thin and often breaks. Is sending people on recovery leave the only way to rebuild the creative thinking capacity of your workplace? I mean, Judith, I think that it's also all of the supports that absolutely we, we need to have in place, employee assistance programs, all of those, those, those mechanisms. And, and, you know, certainly uh, I think at our institution, we saw an increase um, in, in um, accessing of those services. We certainly did across our student body uh, and being, uh, you know, uh, providing that, that individual support is absolutely critical and then I think if we go to uh, some of the um, you know the teams working creatively together and bonding thinking about all of the different ways that we can do that uh, both online and where we can face to face and and you know I'm as as I've already alluded to in this session I am seeing now that we are able to bring back groups uh, on onto campus People are really looking for that. They're looking to have the discussions about how do we position ourselves for the future? What are the challenges? What are the specific you know, strategies that the university's putting in place, having input into those? People really, are, I think, are hungry for those, those opportunities to, to interact, but the, the virtual town halls, the virtual ways of bringing people together absolutely critical through periods like this. Giselle. Yeah, Judah, thanks. Uh, so just a couple of uh, comments in addition to what has already been offered. So I think uh, in addition to the kind of resources and support that the organisation has a, a duty of care to extend towards uh, its staff and its people, um, I think actually giving people permission uh, to to just tell themselves it's, it's, it's okay, enough is okay. Um, 
we're working in a context here in New Zealand where along with the public health messaging, there's been a very strong emphasis placed on kindness, that it is okay to be kind to one another. And that means cutting each other some slack. We work in communities where we have people who have very high expectations of themselves and those around them. So sometimes just dialing back a little bit and understanding that people are having hard times and that we need to then think about the way in which we message, you know, channeling some of those sort of uh, compassionate leadership kind of thoughts. I think that's really, really important in terms of the kind of learning communities that we want to continue to grow and develop into the future. There's uh, a question that came in beforehand, but another one reflects the same from Canada. And that question is, um, how do we address the disproportionate impact of COVID lockdowns on the time and stress budget of female academics? Do you have any suggestions for female academics struggling in departments with no collegiality, collaboration or mentoring? Yeah, I certainly <clears throat> understand where that question is coming from and it speaks to what I was more broadly uh, mentioning before about the inequities that uh, have been borne out or come into sharp relief because of the pandemic. Um, you know, where is the modeling for the kindness, um, the permissive uh, or the permission uh, to be kinder to each other uh, coming from, if not from our leadership, um, the chairs and heads of our departments, our deans, um, it's, uh, it's a sad comment that there might be units or faculties or departments where women do not feel they have anywhere to go or that they're, you know, swimming upstream in, um, in a place that just doesn't want to recognize uh, the challenges or struggles they have. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's a commonly shared experience among women, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. Um, quite, a, uh, quite a lot has been written about it. There was an article, I think today in Nature magazine, um, offering a kind of scientific definition of burnout in the academy. Um, we could all define it pretty much along the same lines, but it does emphasize after uh, many surveys have been done throughout the year, uh, particularly in the US, of um, academic staff um, to assess the kind of uh, workload anxiety and just uh, work, work a day pressures that they're feeling. And not surprisingly, the percentage of women who expressed um, a, a, a rather profound sense of uh, displacement and disengagement, anxiety, the pressures of competitiveness was very, very high, much higher than the surveys had revealed in the past under so-called normal times. So again, the situation seems to be exacerbated for women under these conditions. Any other comments that Deborah? Just just to to add, I mean, we we've been and um, uh, certainly this is a a, a very um, widely you know it's a very strong program in Australia the sage Athena Swan program uh, to obviously support uh, you know gender equity right across our 
our, our academics, particularly in STEM, but much more broadly. And what I've found is, and it's been critically important to keep uh, a focus on that program and all of the initiatives sitting around that program through this period and just the engagement of our, our, our female early career and mid-career researchers has been phenomenal. But it's, it's you know, as, as we go through these kinds of situations, it's remembering to keep doing all of those things as well as focusing on the crisis. And um, I've been, and, and we've, we've now put some additional funding into that program over the next couple of years to really support it because as, as we've heard around the table and in, in the questions, it has been an issue that has been expressed by, by our, our, our female colleagues and there's more that we need to do. And the Athena Swan program does provide a good mechanism uh, to a, a good vehicle for, for that focused work. Giselle. Yeah, thank you. Um, so look, I totally agree. I think programs like Athena Swan are fabulous here in New Zealand. We have the New Zealand Women in Leadership Program, which has been running for a number of years. However, I also think it really comes back to Noreen's point around leadership. So we do expect uh, our leaders, our heads of schools, our heads of academic units, and those who aren't in uh, positional uh, roles of leadership, but who have stepped up during the pandemic, to demonstrate some kindness, but also to, to uh, be able to nuance our systems uh, as an organisation to accommodate the inequities that have been exposed. So an example of that, for instance, is through our um, internal mechanisms of reward, such as academic promotion, we're now very focused on performance relative to opportunity. We're very focused on understanding uh, women and men in their context. Uh, and so, you know, not defaulting to the normative career trajectory of a, an academic um, as pre-COVID might have guided us in our thinking. And I just think we've got to be, as organisations, as institutions, as leaders, very careful and attentive to the changes that we've gone through and experienced in the last 12 months or so. And we really don't know what the longer term impacts on uh, research productivity, research careers are going to be like. And I know that we have many postgraduate research students, many early career researchers, an overwhelming proportion of whom are women who are very anxious about how the rest of their careers will unfold. And I think it behooves us as leaders to really try and uh, think very carefully about how our systems of support dovetail in there, whilst also thinking about equity and excellence, et cetera. Thank you. Um, there are two questions about, um, about the future. And uh, one of them was, uh, there's no roadmap to this crisis. How as leaders have you supported yourselves so that you can support your communities? And then the other one was, how prepared are you now if another pandemic or major crisis were to emerge? What does this look like at a high level? <laughs> and it's not having a good bottle of Pinot at the end of the day. <laughs> but that might help. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things that um, although we're in very competitive space, the, the leaders here in Australia, at least, do have a chance to talk. Uh, Debbie and I have talked and we're very forthright about what's going on, sharing ideas as best we can, offering support to each other. And, and ultimately, we're all trying to do the best we can. Uh, and so we do. It's not like we're working in our own little silos. We do share lots of things. 
Uh, in terms of being prepared for a pandemic, uh, well, we're a lot more prepared than we were, but uh, you know, shutting down our basic mode of operation is never going to be good. So I'd like to say uh, it's we're ready for the next pandemic. Well, we're we're more ready, but you know, please don't make it happen anytime soon. Mm. No, I think Judith, it has been about taking one step at a time for all of us. But as 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 Brian's indicated, it's it's uh, uh, you know there has been a lot of support um, um, among leaders across. Our, our sector, which has been really positive. It comes back to Giselle's comment about kindness and compassion, reaching out to each other, you know, when we know institutions are having, having a tough time. But uh, certainly for, for, for me, it is, you know, you take one step at a time and you work very closely with, with leaders at all levels of, of, of the institution. And it has been amazing how many, how many people have really stood up in our institutions as leaders and you know they may not be in uh, you know particular positions but they've stepped up and that has been absolutely inspiring i think in terms of one of the things one of the silver linings coming out of this situation is i do think we are prepared for other hopefully there won't be others of, of this scale but we are much better prepared than we were we have learned so much as institutions as how do you you know really manage critical incidents we'd all gone through mock critical incident planning and you know that prepared us but this has prepared us extraordinarily well for 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 what might happen in in the future do you do you think this this experience of the last 18 months has had an impact on leadership styles. And we've talked about uh, diversity, inclusion, effective communication, and even the, the language of kindness has been talked about. But when you look across leadership at the various levels of your institution, what's, what, what are you seeing? Uh, Judith, can I just jump in there? Yeah, because um, I feel quite strongly that um, the old models of leadership have uh, shown to be wanting. Uh, I think what we need going forward is compassionate leadership, visible and engaged leadership. So, you know, leaders who are prepared to roll up their sleeves to, to do the, the, the work and to be connected. Um, you know, as Deborah just mentioned, uh, we've seen leaders step up across our organisation who are, who are not in positional roles around leadership but have demonstrated enormous leadership capability and potential. And that's incredibly exciting. So I'm, I'm really excited because I think there's a kind of a, a sense of viral uh, energy around what a new model of leadership is, could look like and will look like. I think it's agile. I think it's connected. I think it's engaged. And I think uh, it's visible. I, I don't think the, you know, the old model of leadership, if that really ever existed, actually, where you have someone who's kind of remote, who's, uh, you know, um, disconnected from what is happening on the ground, that's not going to serve us well in the future. And one thing we've learned from the pandemic is that people bring their whole selves to work. You know, we've, we've seen into people's living rooms and bedrooms on the, on the mm -hmm. Zoom screen. It's come into the workplace. Um, yes, we've seen cats walk across the, the keyboard and so on. But you know, we're, we're all human, as one of the speakers in the video clip today showed very, very clearly. So I think that really strong sense of being connected and 
being real. And one of the things that we did here at Massey on our crisis management team, Judith, to go back to your previous question about what are we doing to model the kind of work-life balance was created a series of little videos from each of us, which really talked about how we are managing the stress, uh, what are we doing in terms of exercise or you know, spending time with family and so on. So kind of just connecting with people, but in a, in a non-corporate kind of way. And uh, I think that goes down well with folks. Maureen. Yeah, I, I, I hope you're right, Giselle. Um, everything you say uh, appeals to me and makes me want to believe it uh, about the changing nature of leadership styles. That uh, Perhaps it took a pandemic for us to really be speaking about this aloud, frankly. Um, I, I do think that um, uh, the, just adopting a kind of top-down managerial style is just not on anymore, particularly because the decisions that have to be made affect now we know every single person at our institution so vitally, so importantly at every level of their lives that um, that just won't wash anymore. So engaging staff and faculty and support staff um, as much as possible in at least coming to an informed decision about major decisions that have to be made, whether it's hybrid, back to campus, remote learning, whatever it happens, these are big decisions that have to be made. They cannot be made by you know, one Titan sitting behind a desk uh, issuing edicts or by fiat declaring this is going to happen tomorrow and that's the way it is. So I, I think it has, um, it's a situation that has really provoked a rethinking about how leadership best functions. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at your own institutions and you uh, did a, a temperature check of staff on campus, um, on a scale of one to 10, where does staff wellbeing fit now and how are you measuring it? And what are you doing with the information? Right. So we've just done a what they call a pulse survey where we've gone through and asked the questions and uh, I would say, yeah, three out of 10. It's not good. Uh, what are we doing? We're listening to the comments of what the stressor points are, trying to address them one by one. I wrote to everyone and saying, everyone, we've worked really hard, but we're going to have to figure out how to work and make decisions of what we do and don't do within the hours available. And people are worried that they're not seeing their, um, their supervisors enough. And supervisors need to get out and have a chat and discuss these things. So those, I mean, the workload, uh, uncertainty of jobs, uh, which we're doing our best job to message around, those are the things that came through. But I think everyone needs to ask the question. People appreciate being asked. Mm -hmm. uh, and you do your best to address the issues that you can. We're, we're about to go out with a pulse survey as well, um, as, as Brian's indicated, and I think that will be a really good opportunity to just see how staff are feeling. But as I said earlier, I'm, I'm certainly picking up from um, my face-to-face -face discussions that, you know, it, it, it's a tough time for our staff uh, right across the institution at all levels. 
And um, I'm very keen to, uh, as, as I say, get this survey out as soon as possible so that we can hear more um, and, and just get a sense of, 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 of where uh, particular issues and what more we can do. Because I think going back to our comment, our discussion about leadership, I think I think Giselle's right. Um, you know, we are seeing uh, the importance of engaged, compassionate leadership, but it's also leadership that listens, really listens and seeks to understand where the challenges are and as best as we all can to respond to those challenges. Uh, and you know, that's um, that is a positive thing that I think has come out of this uh, situation. I think it will continue, but we've got to be in this two-way discussion. We've got to be listening, we've got to be engaging, and we've got to understand uh, where the pressure points are and what else we could do, because I, I know there's more that we can do. Giselle. Hey, Judith, yeah. Um, you asked uh, what was the sort of temperature check uh, of, of staff. I think here it's probably about a five or a six, actually, and I'm judging this based on the conversations that I have regularly with academic and professional colleagues across our three campuses. Um, we'll formally measure this through another voice survey um, very shortly, but I'm making this assessment now because I think that all of our colleagues and their families are still very much impacted by 2020, and one of the things that we were very conscious of that people were desperate to see the end of last year and we're hanging out for 2021, but also knew that 2021 was probably going to be more of the same. Um, and uh, I say that here from a university that has um, had a long history of online uh, and blended delivery, and we managed the rapid transition last year fairly well. We're also intent on keeping the momentum of change going, and that is not easy for people. Um, so, so we expect that we will hear about that in the voice survey and we're prepared for that because we want to listen. And Deborah's right, you know, the onus is on those of us in leadership roles to listen, to demonstrate that we're making changes and we're considering what is being told to us. And then we're, you know, relaying that back to our staff. Um, we, I'm doing this at the moment in terms of uh, some of our teaching and, and learning delivery issues and, and that real-time engagement and listening and fixing, you know, sometimes technical enterprise-wide problems that can make an academic's life so much easier. The onus is on us to do that now, I think. Uh, so it's a really testing time for leaders. So the last question, because we, we're now reaching just about the end of our, our time, is about online education and uh, online education or the addition of technologies in learning will not by default automatically be inclusionary. Careful consideration must be given to inclusive strategies and practices when designing new online learning environments. I'm interested in the panel's perspective on the importance of inclusivity in the context of the pandemic response. Well, there's you have to build up expertise and you know different institutions my own uh has not really been in this space in a big way before and so we're learning we're having to learn from institutions like giselle's which have done this more deacon for example uh here in australia so you have to design uh, using the best evidence that you have. It is expensive and there are all sorts of things that we have done. So for example, we have a large number of students uh, in China 
There are issues with the great firewall of China. I have spent a great deal of time negotiating with the Chinese embassy uh, being whitelisted through that, but it comes with certain, I would say, conditions. Uh, and we have put up a huge amount of IT infrastructure um, at unfortunately great expense uh, to make it possible. So you have to use evidence and then you have to spend money and not pretend that there, you could, there's a short way around this. So it's uh, like anything, if you're gonna do it well, it needs to be designed with evidence and money spent. Giselle, you wanted to say something. Yeah, yeah thanks, Judith. Yeah, look, um, as Brian has alluded to, uh, Massey was in a, uh, an advantageous position pre-COVID lockdown. You know, more than half of our offerings were available in distance mode. So when we did that rapid shift to online, um, it, it was done incredibly quickly, as others have described. Uh, but we already had some know-how in terms of understanding how that operated. Notwithstanding that, we're very conscious that that in that rapid, literally that sort of 48 hour shift, uh, we had a, many staff who had never taught online before. And so we're having to really prioritize academic development. We're having to really prioritize the um, personalized learning to students. And actually that can be beneficial in regards to the kind of wraparound support that we can offer to students who for one reason or another can't come to a physical campus. So at Massey we're uh, pursuing a blended approach. There are some subjects and disciplines that uh, are best taught on campus and their in-person experiences that are highly valuable. But we are working very hard to try and refine and optimize that hybrid approach. Uh, Brian's point also around online learning and the development of online learning support uh, uh, not being uh, inexpensive, uh, so it is expensive, is really important because I think there is a, a crude assumption made sometimes that because you're teaching online, it is by virtue cheaper. It is not, um, not just in terms of the digital infrastructure, but the support you have to wrap around folks, students and staff. And the way in which you teach online is, is fundamentally different. There's a different pedagogy involved. And so um, we do have to embrace this, I think. We're going into a future which is going to be volatile. We are going to be facing different challenges like different pandemics, et cetera. We do need to pivot very quickly. So I think, you know, for us at least, we see our, our commitment to hybrid and blended learning as being uh, a strategy to really future-proof what we're doing. Um, but we can't underestimate the impact on staff, and if I might say, on research, because last year, all of the focus went on teaching and learning, continuity of business, and, uh, and I really feel for the researchers. Thank you. Um, there was just one quick question. Will the survey results from, um, I think I know the answer, be shared across institutions and countries for better understanding and learning in terms of the pulse surveys and other things? Um, no. Uh, I mean, we, we share it with our staff, but... Yeah. I think uh, the high-level things are going to be there, but they're they're highly personal. They've done to extract lots of information, and I, it would be very difficult to to share more broadly, except at the highest level. So, obviously, happy to share the big learnings, workload, uncertainty, really big within our staff. Mm -hmm. Any uh, Deb? Do you want to make a comment? I, I mean, I think like like Brian. I mean, I think with the, Pulse surveys, they are absolutely shared, the results as soon as possible with all of our staff, high level, 
um, uh, outcomes, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we design our, our pulse survey with um, some uh, capacity to, take, to have benchmarking uh, across other institutions, and that's the voice survey as well. So where there's, uh, where we're able to have questions uh, where we can benchmark, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be uncomfortable with, with, with that information being shared. But at the moment, I think all of our focus is on within institutions, really understanding what the issues are, what else we need to be doing, listening, feeding back, uh, and working as, as, as communities to deal with what is still an ongoing and, and very difficult situation. I want to thank all of uh, our participants today. Um, I, I've, I've gone a minute over time and I'm aware that uh, Brian has another meeting and I'm sure Deb has another meeting to go to. Look, thank you for the generosity of providing time to us, the insights uh, that you, you gave to us, but also the candour in which you spoke. Um, I think that everybody who's participated in today's uh, webinar will each have taken uh, something uh, away from it, but in particular, the idea of kindness. So can I leave you with, be kind to yourself and thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.